on your question regarding how was it to work for Shelby, it just depends on the day. Peter and I shared an office, and it was right next door to Carol's. And we didn't close the doors in those days unless he was meeting with Ford or whatever. So, But we could tell what mood he was in by the tone of his voice and the loudness of his voice. And uh, we knew that uh, when uh, it was a good time to ask for something or when's a good time to stay away. Welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars podcast, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities. I'm Randy Cardoon. Thanks for joining us this week. Our Talking About Cars podcast will originate from the Dr. George Car Show in Palm Desert, California. Now, this Dr. George is not to be confused with the former weathercaster at KABC. This Dr. George is a doctor who raised money for local charities in the Palm Springs area with a car show that attracts not only some really great-looking classic and custom cars, but also some well-known car celebrities. Like Peter Brock and Alan Grant, they are big names in auto racing, both having worked for Carroll Shelby during his heyday making Cobras and Mustangs. Brock was the automotive designer, having some big influence on the mid-1960s Corvettes as well as the Cobras, while Grant was the longtime race car driver using Shelby Cobras in many car races. I was joined by my pal Bob Beck from Great American Auto Scene, or GAS, with two A's. Bob joined us in the desert, and Brock talked about his new book, The Road to Modena. Well, this new book is really pretty interesting because it covers all of the cars that I did for Carroll after the Daytona Cobra. Oh. And uh, one of the most interesting one was the last car that we did in combination with uh, Alejandro Di Tommaso that was planning to, to run into the Can-Am days. And then, of course, Ford Motor Company came in and took over Shelby American, and every project that uh, we planned on working on got killed off. There were oh. several other major projects, and this was one of them. So it only ended up as a pretty piece of art, never turned a wheel in anger, but it was still one of the most exciting cars that uh, we wow. had a chance to build. All right, and other cars that you built, what would people remember or know of? Well, uh, the most well-known, of course, is uh, Daytona Cobra that we won the world championship with. Mm -hmm. And I did the uh, Bill Mitchell uh, Stingray for, for Bill at General Motors in 1963. But I had a chance to work uh, for Triumph, uh, did a really beautiful prototype TR250K, which became the TR7, which you see on the street. And uh, did uh, several other little cars, like the GT350 Mustang, which yeah. is primarily a... Um, doing the exterior work on that. Of course, the car was just originally a basic Mustang, but we made that into the race car. That was, I think, probably turned out to be Carroll Shelby's most successful car because we built a lot of them. Right now, in reading about that car, and and I wasn't aware of this, you were a, you started out as a hot rodder like many of us here in Southern California, and the paint scheme on the GT350 came from your custom that you built. Well, actually, my hero in, in when I was going to high school was Briggs Cunningham because he was the first guy to take and run American racing colors at Le Mans. And he'd run them uh, on the several years that he ran over there, which was a white car with blue stripes. And I thought that was so cool when I was in high school that I put that on my 46 Ford, which is chop channeled and sectioned and was really a pretty cool looking custom. But nobody had ever seen anything like that. And then... Uh, it was interesting when the, uh, the opportunity came up to do the uh, redesign on the car for Shelby for the GT350. I had done some more complicated things that were going to take too much time and cost too much money. 
So the, they decided not to do them, so they were at a loss what to do it. I suggested, well, I think the most important thing we could do to make the car really uh, visible out there is put a couple of stripes over the top. And the Ford marketing guys looked at that and they said, oh, no way, nobody will ever buy that. It looks like a skunk. <laughs> and then we compared what it was going to cost to do the stripes versus all the other work. And they said, well, you know, those stripes look pretty good. <laughs> so we ended up putting them on. And, of course, now they've become the standard yep. uh, racing stripes. You see them on every car that uh, Detroit comes out with, which says performance. Yeah. Hey, Peter, when you bought your Falcon Sedan Deliberty, you put those stripes on there. Was that before the Mustang? Uh, yes, about the same time. Yes. Yep. Yeah. That was yeah, yeah. very distinct. Is that what, a 63? 63 Falcon, yeah. Yeah. So it was two years that. before we did that, and uh, that car now resides up in the Cobra Museum up in uh, in Boulder, Colorado. For some people who, who don't know a lot of your past, tell, let's go back a little bit. And where did that automotive love come from? Where did you get interested in the car when you were growing up? Well, I was uh, uh, 12 years old uh, when I uh, got my first job working at a, a job uh, kind of cleaning tools and sweeping the floors at a sports car shop in uh, Sausalito, California. And of course, all the guys at that time uh, were building and racing their own cars. People didn't have trailers at that time. They drove their cars to the races. So I got to go to the races uh, with them. I used to you know, bicycle over after school and, and, and work in the shop and got to see some neat cars being built. And uh, the most important thing was that uh, I got to see some specials being built uh, at that point, it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody really make something, you know, fabricate it. And from that point on, really, the guys that do fabrication have always been the, my heroes. You raced a number of different cars. You were not just the designer. You were the guy behind the wheel as well. And you had some really interesting cars in the early days of uh, road racing. Well, you know, I always wanted to be a racer. And uh, that's just like Alan. We both went to work for Shelby and... Uh, he was the smart guy, figured out how to get in, uh, get a seat in one of those cars. And that car is sitting over here that uh, really put Alan on the map and, and uh, showed K Carol what talent that uh, he had. <laughs> but there were several of us that went to work for Carol and hoping to be race drivers. And uh, I ended up running a school for him. And it's like they say, if you can't do it, you teach. So I guess that's <laughs> What was it like to work for Carol Shelby? I'll tell you. That's uh, probably one of the most complex questions I've ever had. He was, uh, he was a Pied Piper. He uh, put together probably one of the greatest teams of guys in the world. But uh, it had ups and downs. There were very complicated days working for Carroll. And uh, so I've got good stories and bad stories. But it was, I'll tell you, a great, great era. And uh, America wouldn't be what it is without... Uh, mm -hmm. Carol's name in it. Alan, I'm sure you've had good stories and bad stories. Feel free to give us the juicy stories. Well, uh, on your question regarding how was it to work for Shelby, it just depends on the day. Uh, Peter and I shared an office, and it was right next door to Carol's. And we didn't close the doors in those days unless he was meeting with Ford or whatever. So, But we could tell what mood he was in by the tone of his voice and the loudness of his voice. And uh, we knew that uh, when uh, it was a good time to ask for something or when's a good time to stay away. <laughs> All right. By the way, let me just give you a little background. Uh, Peter and I were just talking. I went to work for Carol in January of 63. 
And one of the first persons I met was Peter Brock. And uh, we've been friends ever since. Uh, and so consequently, uh, I went to work as a welder and then went to work in the uh, fab shop and the race car shop. Then they found I had a couple years of college and they moved me upstairs and gave me the title of production control manager. And Peter and I shared an office. And I can tell you right now, this guy Peter Brock is finally getting the credits and the he deserves. I mean, everything about Shelby. He was the first employee right behind Joan. And uh, he was the first employee. He did the logo. He did the graphic arts. He did the, the, um, uh, the everything about Shelby, the advertising. Uh, you look at George Bartell, all those early advertising. You know, uh, Peter brought George Bartell in. It's, it's amazing what this man has done, and I'm proud to call him a friend. Well, of course, Carol, Carol uh, provided the opportunity for it because we were growing so fast. Now, you know, there's, there's a lot of great uh, legend about Shelby, but you've got to realize that when we first started out, we were just half a dozen guys there, a bunch of hot rod guys, and uh, pretty much turned the world upside down. But they were the very best guys. You know, Phil Remington, uh, probably one of the greatest race car builders in the world, went for, uh, came to work for Carroll. He'd been working for uh, Lance Reventlow in, in uh, building the Scarabs. And when that shop got turned down, uh, the IRS was kind of down on uh, on Lance because they weren't making a profit there. So Carol moved into that shop, and and with it was uh, was Phil Remington. And Phil Remington, I think, was probably the most important guy that we had in the whole place because everything that uh, that was the success that Shelby made uh, goes back to Phil Remington. All right, the Cobra days were really important in motorsports, but let's go back to your start. You talked the art center into accepting you. You had, you had, you did a sales job. You got yourself into a really famous school. Yeah, I, I'd heard about this. Uh, I'd, I'd gone to college and, and, you know, I was doing okay. But I, I really, my love was working on cars and wanted to be around race cars a lot. And I'd heard that there was this school down in Los Angeles called the Art Center College of Design. And I didn't know much about it, but I'd heard that they taught how to design cars down there. So on Easter vacation, I drove down there and uh, walked in the back door with all the students and, and kind of sat in the classroom for a couple of hours and saw what was going on and said, man, this is really the coolest place. This is where I want to go to school. So I didn't know much about the school, but I just walked up to the, uh, the front office and said, I want to sign up and go to school here. You know, what's, what's it cost and whatever. And the lady was very nice, and she explained to me that the Art Center College of Design is a, is a school where professionals go after they've been in the industry for several years, and they come back to polish their skills and to get a lot higher. And I said, yeah, 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 fine. Where do I sign? She, she says, no, you have to bring your portfolio in, and it'll be you know, judged by you know, whether we can accept you or not. And there was kind of a long silence. And to show you how green I was, I said, What's the portfolio, you know? <laughs> so uh, she explained that you, you have to have some examples of your best work. So I said, okay. So I went out in the, in the parking lot for about two hours. I opened up my, my, my folder there with the blue lines, you know, with the, uh, and, and sat there and, and, and doodled cards like I did in, in, uh, in uh, study hall. And at the end of the day, I took them back in. And I said, well, here's my portfolio. And 
You know, I, I, I literally talked my they, – they must have needed a check at the end of the month there or something. But uh, they said you can have six months here, and if you can make it, you can stay. And, and uh, fortunately, I had incredibly good uh, instructors there and also a lot of help from the guys that were going there. I mean, these are guys that were already professionals in the industry, and they could see that how passionate I was about designing and building cars, and they really helped a lot. And it was the same thing. I never finished up school, didn't have the money, but by then I'd got to meet Chuck Jordan, who was the vice president, became the vice president of design at General Motors, and at that time he was a headhunter for him. So he'd come out to the school to uh, see which of the top students in the eighth semester that were going to take back there. So I got to know him, and uh, so when I got uh, sort of cut off on funds on school, I called up Chuck and said, hey, is there a chance that you can have a guy that's only halfway through school and he uh, they sent me an airplane ticket and I went back to General Motors at 19 years old and again timing was everything I got to work for Bill Mitchell on the Corvette program which had been just cut off management had decided they weren't going to build any more Corvettes they'd been losing money on them but uh, Bill Mitchell was a wild man uh, decided that we were going to do the car in secret and he couldn't do it up in the Chevrolet studio so he brought it downstairs into, to the advanced concept design we call Research One, where they put all the young new designers for an evaluation and gave us the project down there, and that's how the Corvette got uh, resurrected. So I designed uh, a car at Bill's direction. I don't want to claim that I designed it under his direction. And uh, when that car first appeared in public, uh, it just absolutely turned the world around and management decided that the Corvette would go back into production. But if it hadn't been for Bill Mitchell, we wouldn't have Corvettes today. And that was quite a beautiful car, but there were always discussions about the mechanicals of it and the weak point being the brakes. <coughs> well, the only weak point really was the brakes, but it was very interesting because Zora Duntoff had... Uh, That's kind of a significant part there, Peter. <laughs> well, we'll get to that point here. Oh, I'll okay. show you what happened. All right. Zora Duntoff had, had uh, gone to Harley Earl after they'd uh, raced the stock Corvettes the first couple of times, and they were too heavy and a little cumbersome, and, and Zora Duntoff said, you know, what we've got to do is build a really modern prototype. So what we did is, uh, under the advice of Tony Lapine, who eventually became the head designer at, at Porsche, at that time was a board man there at General Motors, he talked them into buying a 300 SL. We took the body off it. And because that 300 SL had a large kind of six-cylinder motor in it, they pulled a couple of tubes out. We dropped the V8 Chevy in it. And on the top of that car, uh, we built the SS Corvette, which is a beautiful, beautiful car. But it was so beautiful, it took too long to build it. They didn't put enough development time on it. When they took it down to Sebring, it only lasted a few laps because they couldn't talk the GM engineers into putting disc brakes on it. And this is 1957. Jaguar had already had disc brakes since 1955. That's what enabled them to win at Le Mans in 55. But they couldn't talk the GM engineering into doing that. It was just too radical an idea. Other than that, the car was very fast. They put uh, Juan Fangio in the car. He broke the lap record in the car. They put Sterling Moss in the car, and uh, he broke the lap record. But it would only go about three laps before it ran out of brakes. <laughs> All right, Alan, you've had a lot of experience, and one of the, the experiences we talked about earlier this, this morning was you drove a car called the Cheetah. Well, you're being very gracious calling it a car, <laughs> but yes, I did. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because that was supposed to be the Cobra Killer. 
Yes, uh, it's kind of ironic. Uh, my big race, as Peter mentioned, was at Riverside in 1963, where I showed Shelby uh, I could drive, and uh, Bill Thomas was there. And of course, Shelby had promised me a ride in the on the factory team uh, in uh, 1964, but at the time I was going to get drafted, so I ended up having to go into the uh, I joined the Army Reserve and had to go in for six months. And during that period of time, of course, they had already run Daytona and Sebring, and they had the USRC team put together. So I came back, and Shelby says, you know, Alan, I got the team already put together, but I need you upstairs. In the meantime, Bill Thomas had called me and wanted me to, to drive the, kind of the quasi-factory car, a guy named Alan Green out of Seattle, Washington. And so consequently, yes, in May, I raced up at Kent, Washington there, and then we ran that car the entire season, including going back to Canada at uh, Mossport, and then Riverside, and then Laguna Seca. And so consequently, uh, I got a little segue in there about brakes. Uh, this car had stock car brakes, sinister metallic drum brakes. And so consequently, uh, you had to get those babies warm. And so at the start of the race, uh, again, this was a GT car, you know, running with Jim Hall and Roger Penske and Bruce McLaren and all these cars. So I qualified out of 30 cars, I think I was probably about 16, 17. I was fairly well back in the pack. Well, meantime, another guy named Jerry Grant was driving a Lotus Chevrolet that Alan Green also was running. And so he and I got together before the race, and he says, what's your strategy? And I says, well, he says, this car's running real good. And, uh, and I says, I think with a little attrition, I said, I might be able to get a top 10 finish. And he says, well, that makes sense. And so anyhow, they dropped the flag, and we took off, went through turn one. Got up into turn two, and I kid you not, the entire pack almost stopped. And I came down on the brakes, and there were no brakes. And so, fortunately, I was on the inside. I pulled to the inside, and there was enough room, and I went from 17th or 18th up to about 5th, past Jerry and the whole world. <laughs> and so afterwards, Jerry says, what in the hell were you doing? I says, it wasn't in, what, I didn't have anything to do with it, but, but I was able to pass all those cars and get up front, so I didn't stay there long. I think what we've learned here is sometimes having no brakes is a good thing. Well, if you want to turn right, just give it more gas. Right. Yeah. Now, you did win a race with the Cheetah. Yes, I won uh, a couple races, uh, regional races. Uh, my best finish uh, uh, was at Laguna Seca, and I, I still hold the track record, you know, for the fastest front-engine car, you know, on the old track. So. Wow. That's cool. We were just passing through Laguna Seca the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and yeah, we wanted to stop. But it was a non-car weekend, so we didn't. Oh. Now, what other great cars? You, know, you had a, a, an interesting crew chief. I'm sorry? You had an interesting crew chief, or at least it's what it's Oh, called. yes. Uh, actually, I grew up in Modesto, California, and there's a guy named George Lucas uh, that also grew up in Modesto, California. I was four years older, so I wasn't really in school with him, but we had this little club called the Curie Wall. And if you look under, right underneath the executor sign on my Cobra, that's our emblem. And we were a bunch of young guys, and uh, we were running around all winter long. With, uh, we took the tops off, and all, all we had was windscreens. And uh, we had these big uh, peacoat jackets that we'd put up on top. And uh, so when, then when I turned 21, I, got the, I, was, I had an AC Bristol at the time. And I got that thing set up. In fact, I, I think I was the first one ever to put anti-roll bars on, a, on an AC chassis. And so anyhow, I put anti-roll bars in that car, and I was autocrossing it. And I got to the point where... I mean, it's, I had that car, and I were one. If it's possible to have an intimate relationship with the mechanical option, that car and I were one. 
And I knew exactly what it would do, and it knew what I was going to do. And so then I turned 21, uh, ended up racing it, won 12 out of 14 races, went all the way from Del Mar up to Seattle. And George went to every race with me. And so uh, when then uh, at the end of that season, I went back to college. And then during my semester break, uh, I w I've been reading about Shelby and Competition Press. I was going to put in a, you know, a small Ford V8 and an AC chassis. Well, I knew the AC chassis inside and out. So during semester break, I went down there. And then when I became production control manager, I was responsible for uh, you know, selling cars uh, and actually ordering cars from AC. And my biggest dealer, Coventry Motors in Walnut Creek, called up and wanted to buy a race car. Well, I only had one rebuilt race car. And I told him I'd sell it to him under one condition. And they said, well, what's that? And I said, I drive it. And it got real quiet on the phone. And finally, I said, they asked if I'd ever raced. And so fortunately, uh, you know, uh, uh, the company Motors is in Walnut Creek in the Northern California. And I says, call SCCA as Rookie of the Year. And they told him all about it. And I says, furthermore, I says, you got to put up an extra $600. I want to build a special engine. I want to blow off the factory team. Well, that really got him excited. <laughs> And so, you did. Yes. So back in the day, did you have a clue that uh, George would end up doing what he did with Star Wars and all those other movies? You know, it's kind of ironic. You know, when I called George when we got the Cobra, he came down and slept on my couch uh, in Santa Monica. And at the time, I still have some big cardboard pieces where he actually had lasers and explosions going on. And I didn't think anything of it. George was uh, just his uh, little guy, and, uh, but he was always jabbering. And, uh, and so consequently, uh, you know, one of the guys says, hey, told him one time, hey, George, can you just shut up for a while? <laughs> and uh, no, uh, other than the fact that he, those drawings that I have, so I had no idea. That's cool. Now, the Cobra that's parked over there, is that the one you've had all along? I'm sorry? How long have you had that particular Cobra that's over there? That, uh, that actually is a car that I bought in the 80s. Uh, the original car, CSX 2128, uh, actually went up for auction in 2004, and uh, it sold for uh, 2.2 million. They thought it was going to sell for 900,000. Wow. That car today is probably, I'm sure it would probably bring close to 10, because the car is, it's the winningest Cobra. Dan Gurney drove that car at Sebring in 63. Dave McDonald drove that car in the USRC series in, in 64. And then I, I had it, and then Coventry Motors sold it back to Shelby, and Ken Miles drove it in 64. Wow, the history of the, of the Cobra and, the, and racing and it's in those kind, days. It's kind of ironic. Bame Mercier yeah. actually picked up on this car. And then uh, Superformance also produced yeah. what they call the Sebring Cobra. And okay. they made it you know, in the Sebring livery. They made it in the, uh, my livery and, uh, in, and uh, Dave McDonald's livery. And they've, they've been very successful with that car. All right, Cobra Roadsters. I've always loved them, but my preference is the first generation. Totally. Yeah, the small, the small fender car. Absolutely. You're, in fact, Ken Miles and I were talking one day, and he says, you know what? The best of all worlds have been put a small block, you know, in the new uh, uh, 427 chassis, which is basically a 4GT suspension. Yeah. Yep. Of the cars that you were involved with, which was your favorite at General Motors? Well, of course, at General Motors, it was only the Stingray program because I was only there for about two and a half years on through that whole program, and it was a very exciting time. But again, the whole uh, corporate thing about trying to go racing with General Motors, they kept trying to yeah. suppress their racing program all the time, and when they finally suppressed it, totally uh, it was time to leave because there was just no racing there. So I came back out to California and went to work for one of the 
great heroes of, uh, of uh, Southern California racing at that time was Max Balchowski, who built the old Yellers. And uh, that's actually where I met Carol, because Carol had won the uh, Le Mans race in 1959 at uh, Le Mans with Roy Salvadori, and he wanted to finish up his last season in 1960. So he came out and uh, drove the old Yeller for several races. And I went along and accrued on that for a while, and that's how we got together, and I ended up running his race driver school for him. Great. All right, we've got a lot of people out here right now, and uh, Randy's going to go out if anyone's got any questions. Anybody have any questions? Raise your hands, like and Randy will come to you. Okay, Peter all the way in the backfield. Let's go in the back. Thank you for coming up. Why don't you stand up for me? What's your name? Mike. Mike, where are you from? Uh, Anaheim, California. All right, Mike, uh, go ahead. Peter, I wonder if you would talk about your aerodynamic philosophy for the Cobra Coupe and the resistance you met with. Well, the, uh, the design inspiration for the, uh, the Cobra Coupe was uh, actually done in 1937 by the Germans. Uh, there was a young guy at that time named Reinhard Koenig von Faschenfeld, who was uh, I'm started out you remember that. another very famous aerodynamicist named Paul Jarret who had worked for the Germans in World War I and had actually designed the shape of the giant Zeppelins and figured out what was the shape on them that gave the, the best aerodynamic drag. And so those Zeppelins, had, when they started out, their advantage was that they could get above the airplanes because the airplanes didn't have enough uh, power to get up high and they could use them to bomb. But they weren't very fast and when they had to come down, the airplanes would shoot them down. So. He designed a better shape for him, and that was his claim to fame. So every car that you see out there right now with a beautiful fastback on it, that all came from Jurey. That's called a Jurey influence, any car with a fastback. So Jurey also uh, got interested in motorcycle racing, and as he was racing, obviously he was very uh, aware of what the air was doing over his body and figured out that uh, there was less drag with flat panels that didn't taper. So he began to uh, study on that, and while he was going to school, he came up with a project to design a bus for the Autobahn. And he made this bus that was actually a little bit longer with a tapered tail and a chopped off tail on the back end. And it was so much more efficient, and it could carry more people on it, that uh, the German uh, industry under, under Hitler became very interested in what he was doing. So he had applied for a patent on this, but they wouldn't give it to him because he had not yet finished his uh, schooling. So they said, we'll let you work for Dr. Wunderbal Kamm, who at that time was the world's most famous aerodynamicist, way, way ahead on what was going on. So Kamm and von Faschenfeld uh, came up with some ideas with absolutely flat panels because any time that you have a surface, if you can build an ideal surface where the surface does not deviate from the flow of the air more than seven degrees, the air will stay attached to it and creates less drag. The minute you turn it like a fastback, like we're talking about, like Jurey is, the air begins to turbulate off the side and create drag. <coughs> so for an example, if you take a Volkswagen bus, as blocky as that is, that has a coefficient of drag that is better than an E-type Jaguar coupe. It's that the E-Type has less frontal area and is a little faster, but a VW bus actually has a fairly good shape to it because all the sides are flat, the roof is flat, and the air stays attached till it gets backwards to cut off. So obviously, <coughs> manufacturers, are, at the time that all these beautiful, gra graceful cars were being built in the 30s, especially by the French, 
the idea of building a car and chopping the tail off was so ugly that no manufacturer would take the risk to do it. So it wasn't until later uh, when we got farther into trying to make cars much faster and more efficient that I took the uh, ideas for that and put them into what we call now the Daytona Coupe. It was interesting because in Italy at that time, there was another young guy my same age, a guy named Ercole Spada, and he was working for a little carrozzeria in Modena, or excuse me, up uh, in northern Italy, and he built a little car called the Alpha TZ1. And if you look at the Alpha TZ1, it looks almost identical to a Daytona Cobra because he'd studied the same papers that I had found in the, uh, that the Germans had written. So we designed two cars at the same time that looked the same, came up with the same idea and separate things. So Spada, who never got any credit for what uh, he did under his name, but you all know his name as Zagato. So all the beautiful cars that came out of Zagato were designed by our Colson. Spada, and he got it from the same influence on the German design. Any other questions for Peter Buck? Right oh. over there. John. John Craman, excuse me, from Mecham Auctions. John. I would like to ask Peter to tell us his thoughts of having some experience uh, with the power plants, both the small block Chevys in that time period, versus the small block Fords. I'd like to hear your comments comparing the two, please. Well, obviously, uh, Ed Cole had, uh, was the first guy to really design overhead valve motors uh, for General Motors, did the Oldsmobile really in, in 1949. And that went down, did really great in the Mexican road race, and they did the uh, Cadillac engine. And then he shrunk the whole thing down. That became the small block Chevy, which has become probably the most successful racing engine in the world. Um, <clears throat> Ford countered with that idea to build a, a lightweight uh, cast block uh, for a V8. And it actually was designed originally as a 221 cubic inch for the pickup trucks that they were building up in Canada. And that's when uh, Carol first heard about that V8 motor. And uh, the people at Ford had told Carol it at that time had become the distributor for Goodyear tires and had gone back to uh, Pikes Peak to demonstrate the tires and, and show some of the teams back there what they were doing. And he met some of the officials from Ford and they told him about this new lightweight th engine that they were building. <clears throat> so Carol had heard also, of course, that AC was, uh, their engine supplier was Bristol was being cut off put two and two together and that's really how the Cobra came about. So by the time we got the first Cobra uh, that was built on the west coast, the engine had been expanded out to 260 cubic inches. Now a lot of people think that uh, Carroll was the first guy to put uh, the Ford small block in the Chevy. It wasn't. Actually, Ack Miller was the first guy, a very famous uh, California hot rodder, was the first one to take an AC Bristol uh, out to Bonneville and ran it with a V8 engine in it. So that's really where that uh, that whole idea of running V8s came from in, in the Bristols, in the uh, AC chassis. Also, Carroll wasn't the first one to put the engine in in California. Actually, Ed Hugus, who was going to be his Eastern dealer, had already done the job back in Philadelphia. And that car was taken to Ford, and they showed what the potential was. And by that time, the second car had arrived out at Dean Moon's shop, where we, uh, Carol had his shop going at that time, and we put the first 260 cubic inch V8 in it. The reason that, uh, <clears throat> that Carol has gotten most of the credit for doing that is that Pete Peterson and pa had put out the magazines at that time, Hot Rod Magazine and Sports Car Graphic, 
which are the first really uh, car uh, magazines that went out to the public after Road and Track. Uh, when those those editors got hold of that car and started publicizing it, the car became really quite famous because it was much faster than the Corvettes at the time. So that engine worked out uh, very well. It got a lot of good development uh, with our team at, at Shelby's and everything that uh, we had three engine teams building and they all competed against each other. And then the best ideas that each one of those teams would develop would go into the next series of engine. And that's why <clears throat> when we ran our engines in 1963 and 64, uh, we were pretty much unbeatable in American road racing. Uh, the problem was that uh, General Motors management would not allow any real heavy factory-backed teams. They were still paying a lot of guys under the table to run a NASCAR, but uh, there wasn't very much going on uh, with road racing with the exception of Jim Hall. And, of course, Jim Hall came up with all of the great ideas that were banned. Uh, every, every great idea that Jim Hall came up with, the Chaparrales, got banned because it just would have uh, put the rest of the the guys that were out there racing would have put them out of business and would have cut off racing. So there are a lot of a lot of stories that uh, we don't get to hear about. Well, how much horsepower was Shelby getting out of the small block Ford? Uh, we were getting about 385 horsepower out of the 289s, and that's what we ran uh, all the way through uh, 1964 when we ran the United States Road Racing Championship. You could get more horsepower out of them, but... Uh, uh, they wouldn't last quite as long, and uh, later, of course, they made some more high-performance equipment. But uh, Ford put most of their money into the big blocks that they were running at NASCAR at that time. Car designer Peter Brock and race car driver Alan Grant. Hey, remember to subscribe to our podcast on Radio.com, iTunes, and KNX1070.com, as well as Apple Podcasts, so that way you can be notified when a new Talking About Cars is uploaded and you won't miss a thing. And if you're on iTunes, please rate us. Give us five stars and leave a comment about what you think of the podcast, kind of a review, if you will. Our website is TalkingAboutCars.net. And don't forget to follow us on social media. That would be on Facebook, along with Twitter, and on Instagram. And also, you could follow Bob on Great American Auto Scene or Gas on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars. Talking about cars.